but it's also partly like the theology you know if god calls you to do something and you keep at it you will succeed you will conquer your goliath right uh, i would say it's american exceptionalism it's not really theology Welcome to Shake the Dust, Leaving Colonized Faith for the Kingdom of God, a podcast of KTF Press. My name is Sai Hookstra here with Jonathan Walton and Susie LaHood. Today we have an interview with Shadia Kupti. She has worked in peacebuilding and advocacy initiatives for 15 years through local and international organizations in Palestine and Israel. As a Palestinian Christian, she is particularly focused on amplifying the voices and perspectives of women and other minorities. Born and raised in Nazareth, she studied international relations and English language at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, conflict resolution and nonviolent action at Trinity Dublin College in Ireland, and she is currently pursuing a degree in interreligious and indigenous studies at Vancouver School of Theology in Canada. Today, we talk with her about her decision to study indigenous theology how indigenous theology is changing her thinking and practice as a Palestinian Christian, the dualism of Western theology, the inadequacy of Western theology to address intractable social problems, patriarchy in the Palestinian church, and so much more. One more quick thing uh, on this interview. Shadia's audio is not the best. It's our fault, not hers. But uh, the episode is, is totally listenable. She says a lot of great things, so we wanted to bring you the episode. But just so you know, uh, I just wanted to flag that. As a reminder, if you like this show, the best way you can support us is by going to ktfpress.com and subscribing. That gets you our weekly newsletter curating resources to help you in discipleship and political education as you seek to leave colonized faith for the kingdom of God, bonus episodes of this show, and writing for the three of us. It also supports this show and other projects we're working on, like future books. And you can now get a free month of that subscription by going to ktfpress.com slash free month. Again, that's ktfpress.com slash free month. Also, remember to hit the subscribe or follow button on your podcast player. Follow us at KTF Press on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter and tell your friends about us. If you have any questions about anything you've heard on the show, please feel free to write to us at shakethedust at ktfpress.com. We'd love to hear from you. And we might answer your question on a future episode. All right. Now that that's out of the way, here is our interview with Shadia Kupti. Shadia Kupti, thank you so much for joining us on Shake the Dust today. We're just so excited to have you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be with you and really to have a conversation today. Yeah, well, we, we've definitely been looking forward to this conversation and um, have been following some of your work. And just to, to launch right in and give folks a little bit of a sense of your background and what you're doing right now, you're studying with indigenous theologians at the Vancouver School of Theology as part of your own attempt to figure out what it means to be a Palestinian Christian. Can you explain why you would travel so far and study in such a different tradition for that purpose? Wow, yeah, um, excellent question. I was, there are several ways I was trying to kind of think about this and how to say it because you know, we're, we're each one of us is on a journey and, you know, we meet people and things happen that kind of take us on our path. I think for me, um, part of my part of the opportunities I had is to travel a lot with my with my work. So, you know, in some sense, everyone says it like the world is so small. And it's very true that, you know, if you get to travel and you get to, to go to different places around the world, 
you know, it shrinks that distance. Um, and it was actually in one of those uh, conferences that I went to, uh, part of kind of my work with the Christian community, I met an indigenous leader. Um, and it was this forum that, that has a conversation between theologians from the global south and, and the global north. And it was just kind of hearing the, the experience of different indigenous uh, theologians from the south primarily that resonates a lot with our context as Palestinian as Palestinians. And that kind of intrigued me. Um, I'll be honest, I didn't know, I mean, you know, most of my familiarity with indigenous uh, North American context is from the movies, you know, from uh, Hollywood culture. So I didn't know much. And part of this intrigue, intrigueness was to kind of come and see what, what it is and to kind of, in the sense, like a date, <laughs> indigenous theology to see kind of how, what can we, what is our shared language? What, what can we, what can I learn from uh, from this context and how how can I take it and self-reflect my context? Um, and, you know, just the, the, some of the traditions, right? So in this conference, this indigenous leader was praying over another person and he used, you know, he used the ritual of using the feather and burning sage. And I just found it was fascinating because mm -hmm. it, you know, when you go to different Christian conferences, especially if you're from an evangelical context, it's kind of like going to the airport. They're all the same, right? Like it's all kind of the same setting. We have these <laughs> similar worship, similar, uh, um, I dare to say rituals or liturgy. Um, and, you know, seeing something different, seeing someone express their faith differently, just really uh, raised my curiosity a lot. So that's kind of one aspect why, why I'm, I'm kind of uh, doing this. Um, but I think also I've been working a lot with the in the in the context of the Christian community to talk about Israel, Palestine, and social justice. And to be very honest with you, sometimes it's exhausting. I mean, this work is very exhausting. You burn out because you are, you know, one person hitting this huge, uh, huge, huge wall, um, and you can get tired. And for me, it was time to kind of say, okay, you know, I'm doing the same thing and expecting a different result. Maybe it's time, you know, I, I just took this time to see, to say, okay, I'm, I'm intentionally creating a distance because I want to see things differently. I want to try to see things differently. So it's this kind of shifting or trying to see things from different entry points. So maybe, you know, to get revitalized, to get inspired, to keep that oomph to keep going. Because, you know, working for the Palestinian issue sometimes can be very, very hard. Yeah, wow. And thank you for your for your vulnerability in, in sharing that. And um just to go back to a point that you made about, you know, these Christian conferences, even global Christian conferences that that you attend. And uh we recently had Kyle Howard on our podcast and he talked about how specifically he was talking about white evangelical seminaries in the United States, but just mm -hmm. about how without realizing it, a lot of times what's being taught or pretty much all the time what's being taught is white theology, but they don't realize that. And mm -hmm. it's just sort of packaged as this is theology. This is how you study God and learn about God and worship God. And I think it's so helpful how you unmask that we do have rituals that we practice. We wouldn't call them that, but those are culturally based things. And, and those things need to be decolonized and and we need to be able to find and appreciate and even take part in other forms of expression of, of 
learning about God and and being in his presence. And yeah, so I appreciate the way that you sort of unmasked that. Yeah. So following up with that, what are some of the indigenous traditions and practices that you hope to bring to the fore as a Palestinian theologian, as you decolonize your own um, theology and, and bring in some indigenous practices? What are some you're hoping to integrate? Yeah, I, I think, you know, Again, it's it's for me. It's kind of still this ongoing process of learning and being, you know, willing to kind of try to learn a lot at the same time, self reflect, and you know, I just want to say just a few points before kind of answering, you know, because even when we say indigenous traditions, right, that there there is an assumption which is very true is that it's uh, it's very diverse and it's very varied. And right? in Canada alone, there's more than six hundred different indigenous groups that have their own rituals and traditions. Um, and also as an international student here in Canada right now, you know, we have to also acknowledge that I am benefiting from a history, a painful history that indigenous people here, um, have suffered from settler, from settler colonial, um, nation state. And many of us come to the U S and to Canada as Palestinians or, you know, coming from the middle East, we're here to seek a better life. Uh, because we come from war-torn countries. But we also come to a context that has its own history of wars and wrongdoings. And part of trying to say, like, we have to be also be attentive that part of our pursuit for a better life should also extend to our neighbors where we are here. So be proactive Mm -hmm. and mindful to behaviors, policies, and decisions that are hindering the survival and existence of those on the margin in this context here. Um, and I think that's part of part of these indigenous tradition and practices that I'm kind of learning as I go. In the sense, yes, we come from a very painful. I come from a very painful context, but there's also other people who come from a painful context. And can I make room for? Am I able to kind of listen and learn from them? And we have this shared experience of struggles. And really, a lot of the writing, a lot of the commonality with indigenous context here is about that theology of struggle or the theology of resistance. Um, because in many ways, there are a lot of similar experiences of being uh, colonized, treated in a way that is inferior to the dominant culture. But also there is, and I think the indigenous context here, which I'm really fascinated by, is the how it the worldview, you know, how the understanding of things is so is, is different. And I'll give you an example. This idea of how we, as, as those who grew up uh, evangelical, how we understand the word spirituality and how an indigenous person understands the word spirituality. And that look at that relationship with the land, right? That's so important. Even if you look at something like food, if you notice like Palestinian culture is so centered about food it's also part of our it's part of our hospitality it's part of our uh, meeting together and i've noticed a lot of time when when palestinians travel to different cultures and they're eating their food it, the, the point of comparison is always the mothers their mothers food right? that's not good it's not as good as my mom's food there's this pride in our food but really, the, a lot of our, our, our dishes, uh, and that can be true for a lot of other Middle Eastern uh, cultures, it, it comes from uh, ancestral knowledge and connection to the land that we have acquired and passed on to generation and generation, right? I mean, it's nothing, I don't think our parents or even we uh, use a lot of cookbooks to cook air food, right? It's usually the family that teaches us or, you know, the auntie that comes and kind of shows us how to do it because it's not just about the ingredient. It's how your particular 
family combines the ratios. But but that's all really, in some sense, there is a spiritual element in that that we kind of don't look at because we we, we have this, um, we're influenced by the Western understanding of, you know, separation between mind and body, soul and, and the body. So our spirituality is confined to this understanding that spirituality has to do with our thoughts, with how we, what we're thinking. Very, very seldom do we look at what is our body? What do we bring with us to church? What am I bringing? You know, what am I, what am I eating? You know, what am I consuming myself with? That's also part of who I am. That's part of my spirituality and connection to God. And so, um, you know, just looking at kind of our symbols, whether it's the olive tree uh, and the different foods that Palestinian food is primarily a vegetarian because this knowledge of which plants to eat, when to eat them, how to eat them, um, uh, there's something very rich there. I mean, and I think another um, example to a rootedness and connection to the land is if you look at uh, embroidery, Palestinian embroidery, patris, um, and in the indigenous context, there is a similar uh, tradition called regalias, that these are dresses that are usually worn in ceremonies in indigenous cultures. And But it's the same concept that these uh, dresses are made, right? They're made by the person who's wearing them or it's passed on from generation to generation. But if you if you look at the, the history of, of, of the Paris, it's a storytelling that's very, that's passed on from matriarchal ancestry that tells the story of the specific of our uh, our ancestors of a time and, and place that happened and they were just sharing what you know they were narrating their stories based on what was around them whether it's a bird or it's a cypress tree or it's uh, you know different elements in the dress told their stories and even how it, how they were made you know at one point everything was made from natural resources from plants and insects so again this ancestral knowledge uh, that's passed on, uh, and we kind of keep it in a very uh, disconnected from our spirituality. And it just made me start thinking as I was learning from the indigenous context. I mean, our weddings now, everyone wears white dresses. That wasn't necessarily the case. But even mm. in our churches, right, uh, uh, all of us go to church and we dress kind of in Western costume, Western attires, right? We don't wear our traditional uh, gowns anymore but even at conferences i think there's only one or two conferences that i attended that actually had uh, the palestinian tradition or traditional dress Um, usually we Mm -hmm. those we wear them in in graduations sometimes the gowns have embroidery on them but you know why have we disconnected our culture from anything that we consider spiritual. You know, just looking at the uh, Canadian Indigenous context and, and reflecting on my context, these are some of the things that I'm trying to kind of grapple with and understand. Can I ask, going back to something you said before, yeah. you mentioned that you, you came to study Indigenous theology in part because of a certain amount of, I don't know, exhaustion mm-hmm. associated with some of the issues uh, that come up consistently when you're doing theology and doing your kind of work in Palestine. But then, you know, my, my first thought was, well, you're, you're moving to a context and learning from people who have, you know, just as many issues of justice and, and pain in their context. And I mean, you mentioned that immediately thereafter. So is there something about dealing with the, um, 
the difficulties that other people are facing or learning from people who, who have been in a different context that is sort of less exhausting or how, how is that, is that actually easier for you to handle in some way? Does that question mm-hmm. make sense? Yeah. Yeah. No, excellent question. I mean, again, I also, you know, I also went to school. Um, I have another degree in, uh, in Ireland, right. And the Irish context as well, which was what, what fascinated me to kind of go and study in, in Ireland was also their context and their conflict and to kind of learn mm. from that. Because I think I'm not tr- trying to kind of um, distance myself and, uh, I want to kind of keep digging and keep trying to figure out like wh- how to keep going, you know, how do we keep advocating and fighting for equality and justice as Palestinians? Yeah. And, and I think there's much to learn from others because we're not the only ones again who, who are doing it in a sense. And, you know, the context here, you know, it's, uh, well, it depends on how you view history, but it's a long prolonged history, very painful history. Um, and I think, having that ability to look at it and see and understand the struggle. Yeah, there's something there that, that helps. There is power there, I think. There is a lot of comfort in, in, in that journey to keep going at things and to kind of explore them in order to understand your, yourself better. Yeah, it's, it's not escapism for you. You're trying to dig yeah. deeper and push further. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So you talk about... Uh, a little bit about the differences between liberation theology and post-colonial theology and indigenous theology. So can you uh, help us understand kind of the distinction between those things and also how they overlap and intersect? Sure. I mean, let's start. I think if you think about, you know, what do we consider in theology, what do we consider to be the source of what, what tells us about God, right? And there in, in, in the academia, there's like four sources like read upon. Christian faith was re- revealed by scripture, illuminated by tradition, brought to life in personal experience, and confirmed by reason, right? So there's four elements that kind of tell us more about God. And mm-hmm. religious experience, right? It's it's about who's experiencing it, but it also reflects a certain class, race, ethnicity, and gender. So, and we know, right, academia, as, as including theology, it's you know, usually those who had these positions of telling uh, telling us what is theology, what is not, was a specific group of people, mainly white, mainly men, right, dictating what theology is and what is not. Mm-hmm. And so liberation theology kind of started that burst of this bubble to say that it's not really just that particular class and group that can that you know, understands God, but it's actually coming from the poor and the oppressed. They are the ones, you know, they're the ones who do theology, and it's constantly kind of challenging the uh, the theory from and the practice, right? The gap between them. And I mean, again, the distinctions of I was trying to really try to figure out like what is comes first, and but that's the whole idea, right? These types of theologies they burst the bubble and they they flatten the hierarchy. They're like, no, there's no hierarchy. Like everyone, you know, anyone's experience, whatever class, race, ethnic group they come from that's there that's they can they have an under a different understanding of god and we need to elevate uh, elevate that right so indigenous mm-hmm. uh, theology uh looks at the ethnocentric the colonization right the colonized is the is the one to speak and want to kind of elevate their voices so post-colonial it looks at the power relations white dominant systems and how how these kind of inform ideologies again the other is at the center it's not uh, it's not the powerful, it's the colonized, or it's the disempowered. 
And I think, you know, in this whole process of uh, what I'm saying, like how to deconstruct, like I want to, I'm constantly deconstructing what I know or my theologies, which means to critique it, to challenge it, and sometimes to reject things. So, and I try to reconstruct it, reconstruct some theologies where you reconsider, you create, you build, right? This is the whole like prophetic imagination. That's really what mm -hmm. theology is about. It's how do you understand God and it gives you that space to kind of, uh, uh, express where God is uh, in your specific context, in your specific time. And I think, think about it, like, again, like the language that we use, look at our worship music, right? Some of our, I mean, again, like I'm say, I say I'm an evangelical, right? And evangelicals pride themselves that they have uh, no, no um, liturgy, but that's a liturgy. If you have no liturgy, that's already studied liturgy. But what are our traditions and rituals? And then if you want to decolonize theology, uh, like you mentioned, Susie, is like the dominant culture of Western Christianity. So mm -hmm. What are aspects of our theology that kind of maintain that imbalance or that status, mm -hmm. dominance of Western Christianity? And so to indigenize theology, again, right, like my question, like what does it mean to be a Palestinian Christian? How, how, what is our image of God? Uh, what does mission look like for us? So it's kind of just these processes that are ongoing all the time, you kind of try to kind of create uh, and deconstruct and deconstruct as you go. Along with that, um, I know you, you've overlaid these great definitions and you've given some specific examples about how this has informed your theology and your orthopraxy. So I'm mm -hmm. wondering if you could name some specific ways that like the things you're learning have have reformed and refashioned your theology and how you hope to live out your faith as a Palestinian theologian? Yeah, I think the, I can think, you know, I can give you two examples. When I moved here, which was not, not a long time ago, I, this is my second year here, I actually got more and more interested in gardening, right? And um, back home, I dabbled with it. I didn't really, my dad loves to do, uh, loves to do gardening. And I think with the deconstruction of a connection to the land of, of what we are practicing or trying to, when I do my garden, for me, it's become kind of the spiritual time. It's time to reflect because it's not always, God doesn't necessarily speak to us in the big things. Sometimes it's in the small things. Um, again, being attentive, like, you know, that uh, as Palestinians, we used to be agrarian culture, right? And so agrarian culture this this ancestral knowledge that we know the plants and we have this relationship with the land that's also that, that respects the land um in a sense and we are in a context uh, that people are trying to subdue us and subdue the land and so where do we stand in this um and so for me gardening taking in that practice it's part of that it's connected to this um to this process because um, there's something to be learned about putting a seed and this anticipation and there's, there's this space that you don't know what's going to happen when it's going to, to open up you know you try your best make sure the soil is good it's in the sun it's you know it's sunny it's not moist but there is a, a point where you just wait and something happens and the seed opens right and starts mm -hmm. growing and and so so there's something very uh, there's a lot to learn from that. And I think, you know, for me, it's opened up a lot of conversation with, with my dad, like, you know, uh, what's the best way, where do I put the cucumbers, like, you know, sun direction and, or, or tomatoes. 
Um, but it's kind of keeping that tradition, even though I'm, I'm away, you know, I'm far, so far from home, but, you know, to keep these traditions and then learning from that process and seeing it all connect together. It's kind of strengthening my understanding of what does it mean? What does it mean to be connected to the land uh, and how these practices are part of our, you know, it's a part of our embodied experience um, as, as beings. Uh, another uh, another example, it's really reconsidering like what is our the relationship between our knowledge and power? Like how do we know mm-hmm. what we know and what are the sources of these uh, of our of our knowledge? Because you know even our understanding of God, many times it's impacted by this dualistic worldview or Western worldview of like body is one hand mind. So we have this this is spiritual and this is earthly. When we have these distinctions, inadvertently, we're rejecting, you know, and many times the messages reject the earthly, embrace the spiritual. And so growing up, you know, this having a personal relationship with God and focusing on uh, your salvation and the salvation of others, in a way, it's also indirect message was don't care about things that are happening around you. Most important thing is spiritual salvation. Yep. And it's really, right, and as, as a Palestinian, you grew up in a context and all of a sudden, you know, you've become the enemy, you know, you've become uh, uh, demonized and perceived as God's enemy because your presence is hindering the second coming of Christ. And you're like, how is that spiritual? <laughs> like, what happened to the dualistic worldview of like, don't concern yourself with uh, things that are in the material world? Right. So Mm -hmm. there's these dissonances that have been created between what you are taught and what is being uh, done about it. Um, And then you have to go back to kind of why is that the case? Then let's go back. And and so, again, you know, these kind of processes that you try to pinpoint and sometimes uh, interesting, like I'm saying, like the disembodied and and the bodied elements of our being. But it's a lot of time where all of that, like academia, it's science, right? It's all about the thought, the mind, and what we think, and how we say what we think, and expressing it. And that is one aspect, but it's not everything. There's also the experience of our 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 bodies, our our ancestry, what we bring, what what we, what we bring with us as well as we uh, journey together. It sounds like a little bit what you're saying is that the evangelical way of making that distinction or the Western way of making that distinction between spirit and body was done selectively, right? There were sometimes that, yeah, right. So, so I, I think what you're saying is, or at least a part of what you're saying is that indigenous theology kind of eliminates the ability to make that distinction selectively by eliminating the distinction entirely. (laughs) Is Is that right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because yeah, indigenous understanding is like everything is connected, right? We're interconnected. It's it's not really this dual uh, separation. But absolutely, yeah, I, I I am trying to say that this dualistic worldview should be rejected, you know, or I do reject yeah. it. But it's also like, what do you then? What's the alternative? How do we, you know, how do we rebuild something else that's different um, uh, that that can replace that? Um, but sometimes it's, you know, to critique and to challenge is also part of that. Um, and it takes time to, to replace it with something else. Yeah. I think probably uh, related to that, you have talked about how your uh, upbringing in an evangelical tradition gave you some kind of Western ways of thinking and practicing your faith that made it really difficult to 
fruitfully interact with kind of these seemingly intractable, you know, global problems like um, war or poverty or hunger. Uh, can you elaborate on that a little bit? Sure. Yeah, I think a lot of the, you know, on one hand, yes, I, I was brought up Baptist, right, evangelical. On that, from that perspective, I mean, I did have, I do feel like my upbringing in terms of understanding God and who God is came from that tradition. Um, and it's very powerful and life-changing for me. But at the same time, also, yes, there were also other things that were not life-changing. There, there were a challenge and kind of pinpointing what they are. So when I, my choice to work in peacemaking, right, to, to try to be active, um, because I was, I believe that, you know, as, as Christians, we are supposed to, we are agents, we become ambassadors of our faith. And it's part of our uh, calling is to be at peace with, with those around us and to kind of take, take my faith seriously. And so uh, in that sense, you know, when I, um, my, my career was really working in uh, the parachurch organizations and trying to kind of promote this. What does peace, what does, you know, God's shalom look like? I think, you know, part of it is maybe it's also maybe I was naive, a bit young, but it's also partly like the theology um, that you are brought up that if you, you know, if God calls you to do something and you keep at it, you will succeed. You will conquer your Goliath, right? Uh, but yeah. I think this is trying to... Uh, deal with the Israeli-Palestinian context, even in the church, right? To try to say, guys, you know, we are, we are, you know, Ephesians 2, God broke the wall of partition. We need to be one. We need to be united. It doesn't matter if our ethnicities are at war. Our calling is to be, we are brothers and sisters of Christ. But at the same time, it's the same, it's the same group that comes and says, no, God destined us to be enemies. Uh, go read read your Bible. Or Arabs are, you know, peace will never happen here. We actually need war because that's when God comes back. And so you have these, again, these contradictions to things that you thought, but that, you know, we're supposed to be peacemakers. Like, what's what's wrong about, like, wh why is it so bad to try to get have peace? Like, why do we want destruction? Like, is that why God created humans so that they can be destroyed you know like there are these all these questions that come up uh, and in the end i think they just make uh, make things or show you how complicated and the different layers to try to address an intractable problem right israel palestine has so many layers it's so entrenched um to think that because i want to do peace uh a, because you know i'm doing god's work it's going to be solved it's a some. It's somewhat like a. It's an. It's that's what I would say. It's American exceptionalism. It's not really theology, <laughs> right? So these mm -hmm. this impact of the understanding. Uh, the same thing with poverty, right? Poverty, you know, uh, and it's something that the church here in Vancouver that, like tries to address, uh, even though this is North America and thing. Uh, there's there's a availability of food uh, in British Columbia before COVID. One out of eight households were insecure. After COVID, it's gone up to one out of seven. Food insecure. Uh, food insecure. So a lot of churches, what they do is they offer food programs, right? So they open their facilities to try to give people to come in and have food. Now, you get, uh, you, I can also say, well, they've been doing it for 20, 30 plus years. Poverty is still, still here. It's even, I think it's gotten worse. Does that mean the church shouldn't, shouldn't continue doing food programs? Right? No, but it also means that maybe, you know, one track is food program, but maybe we need to also 
look at the root causes, try to understand the context a bit more, uh, and, and try to kind of work on different layers and different sectors to try to kind of address the problem altogether. Mm-hmm. Um, all that to say that, you know, issues that are intractable, you, you know, we have to also acknowledge, and I think part of my process is also to acknowledge that we cannot rely on the outcome to continue or not to continue doing what we're doing. Um, but I think in many times theology kind of doesn't prepare us for this reality, uh, you yeah. know, and we think, you know, another example, you know, evangelism, right? And in, in the classical uh, evangelical view is that only Christ will save the world, right? And in practice, what that meant was like, we need to evangelize everyone uh, so that, uh, uh, because once everyone is a Christian, there would be no problems in the world, right? Like, or, or, or something in, in, from that from that perspective. And that's completely, uh, you know, that's completely un- not necessarily the full picture. Because even as someone who tries to do reconciliation, even within the church, we couldn't agree. You know, we couldn't get, get our theologies uh, to kind of converse with one, one another. So what does that mean? So how do we then approach and how do we then engage in social justice um, knowing that, I think a lot of the work starts with our theology. Yeah, mm-hmm. I've I've been thinking a lot recently, and I hear this in what you're saying. I think is that when you have a theology that is that is a lot about strength and victory and the inevitability of your success, when you have that, you know, American exceptionalism instead of theology, <laughs> you, I think, end up actually being like quite weak. It's it's sort of counterintuitive, but like a, a, a theology of you know, strength and victory, I think, uh, makes uh, like a lot of people unable to handle difficult problems and things that are intractable, like you're talking about. And I, it, you know, it creates a lot of despondency in Christians and uh, in, in a lot of Western Christians. And and just the when, when you expect to win all the time and mm-hmm. you don't, you you face problems that are just because the world is broken and you're not going to fix them anytime soon. It it makes it. I don't know, incredibly difficult to do the kind of good that God wants us to do amidst suffering. Hmm. Yeah. So Shadia, you also have thoughts on people who are on the margins in the Palestinian context, particularly women. How do you think Palestinian theology can challenge systems of patriarchy? Yeah. I mean, as a, as a Palestinian myself, right, I grew up in the church. Um, I, I, then continue to work in parachurch organizations, but it's still faith-based. And so my leadership, my ability to be a leader was through, you know, the, the parachurch organization. Um, mm-hmm. a, but you also, as you kind of grow in, in leadership and you have opportunities, you kind of see that there are less, there's not, not as many women in, on the tables as, as men. And the conversation and the discussion about why are, you know, why, how can we bring more women in, in the, in the table is always there, but many times, like you reach, you reach this that point where we, we don't have any enough women, or we don't know how how to bring more women to the conversation. And so, you know, for me, I was always kind of being like, no, you need to invite women, you need to kind of advocate for women, and to have mm-hmm. them uh, to be here. You know, what I realized here uh, when I came here and I was kind of again introduced to indigenous uh, culture. It just kind of highlighted that actually patriarchy is also a Western Christian problem. It's not really just because I'm we're Middle Eastern, right? And we are we are patriarchal. It's it's a problem of the church, 
because in Canadian indigenous cultures, some of them are uh, matriarchal, and actually it's the church that made them patriarchal or tried to enforce patriarchal structures on. And for me, I was like, oh, wow, I never thought about that, you know? It just changes my perspective because I think the gender, the, 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 the fight for gender equality is kind of influenced more by secular Western society. How do we then challenge uh, and keep the question about why are women not in the conversation and how do we bring more women to the conversation? Uh, and it's a lens that I always have with me. It's not just about gender. It's any kind of, in any setting, right? In any uh, meeting, you're, I'm not just looking at who is in the conversation, but also who's not. And I think it's something as a minority, you kind of always just develop that lens. Um, and it's good. It's good always to have it and to keep that in mind, you know, right? Because even if you think about it, you know, can you think of a Palestinian woman that has spoken? I mean, not just... Uh, necessarily in the church, but also outside the church, right? Like, how many women can you, how many women can you name who've spoken on particular issues? Uh, and then you have to ask them, if, if not many, why? Like, what's the, what, what is the reason? And many times when we're, Palestinians are invited to conferences, uh, this imbalance is enabled by the organizers because they want Palestinians to come, but they also need to be aware that Again, our experiences differ to have kind of a platform to speak and to have a platform to share what it's like to be a Palestinian mother, grandmother, sister, young person uh, has a different challenge than an equivalent male. I think, uh, you know, the, the, how can Palestinian Christians challenge patriarchy? I think it starts by telling our stories and making sure we have, we have a place at the table uh, to be heard and to advocate for issues that are affecting kind of also our lives as well as the society in general. Yeah. So, so then is it not so much the, the theology as we, we might understand it, but it's more when you, when you talk about the, the, like a way that Palestinian theology can help challenge patriarchy, you're talking more about what you've been talking about with indigenous or liberation theology of people being able to tell their stories and having room to say them in the church, speak with their experiences and that being the kind of theological approach outside of how like a Western person might understand what theology is. Yeah. Yeah. Because again, like, right. If, if, if patriarchy is a, is a Christian or global, global church uh, issue, um, those who are, will, will, will challenge it is that uh, those on the margins within that system. So if it's patriarchy, then it's women. So it starts with women speaking up, giving, getting more of a platform to, to, uh, to be able to challenge the system, to identify what needs to be challenged and to kind of say this power structure needs to be deconstructed. And I think in many ways in, in the West, right, uh, feminist theology, uh, as well as in, uh, in America's, right, in Horista theology, they've started to kind of unpack that. Um, but in the Middle East, we haven't yet kind of developed what that looks like. And even, you know, for that, I want to kind of mention there are, there are quite a few Palestinian and Arab theologians out there um you just have to be intentional in looking for them you know how the how how academia also is um academia in general is is very biased or kind of unequal to women uh if you look at the process of citation right the more citations you have you know the more uh publishing you have but uh, i don't know if you know the book of um caroline Priado Perez, she wrote a book called Invisible Women, and she kind of did all this data and looked at how the data is biased to in the world that's designed for men. 
So she kind of said, you know, studies have shown that women are systematically cited less than men. Uh, another study shows that men usually self-cite 70% more than women. And women tend to cite each other more than men do. All right. So there's kind of this publication gap that kind of just keeps feeding on. And it's true. Like when, you know, someone speaks and you want to try to uh, uh, refer others, you kind of either tend to keep it in your circle that's around you and who you know. <laughs> and in the same way, I want to do that mm -hmm. as well. And I want to cite other women and kind of uh, guide us to some other names that are, that are Palestinians who are you know, working in theology, not necessarily just regarding patriarchy, but in general, that, that they're there, they're working, they're just not necessarily in, in the forefront of uh, the public discourse. Could, could I, I have sort of a two-part question. One is, could you give us a couple of examples of Arab women theologians that, that our listeners might not know about, but then our listeners are also obviously mostly English speaking, so they would have to be people who are publishing in English. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, and this is the thing. I mean, I, get, I also want to point out that uh, most of the theology written, even you know, like a Palestinian theology and indigenous theology, right? You enter a system that's set. You want to engage in a current system. And so mm -hmm. most of theology, and you know, if you think about it as well, like if you want to be a good theologian, uh, you don't necessarily go to the Holy Land where things, where, where, where God spoke to, to humanity. No, you go to where that, uh, uh, to go to the West, most likely that's where good theology students, because in a sense that's where you get that uh, acknowledgement and you get the, the learning. And so, again, most of the, the Palestinian writers and theologians, they do engage in the, that academic uh, setting, so it's, most of the writing is in English. Yeah. Uh, actually, very few do writing in Arabic, and that's the challenge is actually to write more in Arabic than, than in English. But again, because you're also engaged, you want to become a theologian and you want to engage uh, and influence, right, the current discourse on Israel-Palestine or on other um, theological matters. So languages also plays a lot of, plays a lot in it. So some mm -hmm. names, just to give you some. Um, Grace Zorbe Artin, she's originally from Bethlehem, currently in the UK. And she, she kind of, one of her publications was, she listed 18 uh, female theologians and Christian leaders you should know that are Arab. Oh great! Well then, let's let's link to that article if you yeah. want to. If you could send it to us, then absolutely, so, uh, we will have that article linked in in the show notes. Then, Shadia, one thing since you brought up feminist theology, one thing you also mentioned in sort of the lead up to this conversation, um, in the exchange that the the four of us were having, how you mentioned how feminist theology in some ways has itself also been sort of colonized, and so a lot of female theologians prefer to frame things within the lens of womanist theology. Could you explain the distinction between the two and what that that difference looks like, how that framing is different? Absolutely. Yeah. So um, if we go back, remember when I said there's like four sources of uh, sources of theology and, you know, personal experience usually came from white men, right? Uh, and in the same way, same thing with feminism is that when it started, it was a specific class of women, like white women were writing about uh, feminist issues. Um, and mm -hmm. that's why uh, there's a lot of hesitation to use this term because of its, because of the dominance of that uh, specific uh, people group that um, dominated the conversation. So there is the, yeah. usually the 
preference is to do womanist, which has to do a lot with more uh, black uh, theologian experience, as well as uh, Mujarista, which is more of the South American uh, experience of women. Look forward to see what that looks like, what word we can use in the Middle Eastern context. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, Shadi, thank you so much for for your time, for joining us today. Where can folks follow you? And is there anything else that, that you would like to plug, any other resources that you would like to point our listeners towards? I must admit, I'm not as active on, on, on social social media as, as before. <laughs> they can reach out to me on Facebook. And uh, I want to just plug in um, the podcast that uh, me and two friends did together. Um, it's called Women Behind the Wall. Mm-hmm. And again, the idea of the podcast was to uh, offer an entry point, a different entry point to talk about Israel-Palestine. And so the idea was to record and, and play uh, stories of Palestinian women and how they intersect their gender and faith with, and conflict. Um, and they're short, you know, short stories, 30 minutes. Uh, the website is built in a way to help kind of any terms that are said in the, in the story to kind of help unpack what that means. And so, yeah, it's womenbehindthewall.com. Yeah, and I should say we, we actually referenced your podcast i don't think we knew how to like tweet at you when it happened but we referenced it in one of our our um, newsletters first newsletters yeah that's right so because we were just so impressed by that resource so yeah definitely happy to include it in this episode and in the show notes so folks can access it i agree that just highly recommend it Mm. thank you so much again it's just been such a privilege to have you on today Oh, thank you for having me. You know, as someone who's tried to do a podcast, I I really like you guys do great work. And I thank you so much for this opportunity, really. Thank you so much for listening. Please remember to check out ktfpress.com and consider subscribing. And remember that you can get a free month of our subscription at ktfpress.com slash free month. Please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at KTF Press. Hit subscribe or follow in your podcast player. And please do tell your friends and family about us. It is so helpful and we really appreciate it. Our theme song, as always, is Citizens by John Guerra. Our podcast art is by Jacqueline Tam, and we will see you all next week. Yeah, so following up with that, as you as you've been learning and growing, what are some of the Oh Jonathan, can you Oh sorry, can you she's totally there. Sorry. It's okay. <laughs> I was trying to talk fast. Um, yeah. <laughs> what what are some of the indigenous traditions and practices 